Amen. We have some other folks being baptized in some of our other services this morning, but uh, let's, let's bow to the Lord in prayer and just commit uh, those who are being baptized today and just commit our service to the Lord together before we get started. Father, we've sung here this morning those beautiful words, uh, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Uh, we've sung about how great is our God. And uh, Father, we come before you here this morning gathered as your people that you've called out of darkness into your marvelous uh, Father, we thank you for these who will be baptized here today. We pray that they will go forward, uh, providing an example of that for them. And Father, we pray for the many in our church who are struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever way it may be, that you'll meet them right where they are, that you'll meet their needs, and you'll pour out your blessing upon them, Lord, and your good hand of, of healing will be upon them. And Father, we want to just commit ourselves now and our time and this service to you, and we pray that the Spirit of God would be active in our hearts and minds, that he'd be our teacher this morning. We ask these things in the precious name of Our study this morning in the book of Philippians, if you want to turn there with me, our text this morning is uh, Philippians 1, 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. So we're going to finish chapter 1 and make our way into chapter 2 this morning as we continue our exposition of this book together. Uh, let me read these verses for us to uh, get the Word of God in our minds this morning as we begin our service, our message, uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27 in the book of Philippians. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me, and now here to be in me. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard each, uh, each one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also... There was a new preacher at a church, and he was moving his things into his new office, and he came across the former pastor who was moving his things out of the office. And the former pastor said, I left three envelopes in your desk, and he says, if you have any trouble, open them. And of course, the new preacher thinks he'll never need them, but in his youthful enthusiasm, before he's there too long, he tries to change the order the kids march in during vacation Bible school. Well, this makes a lot of the workers furious, and uh, there's a lot of ugly talk about the new pastor, and he remembers these envelopes, and he opens the first one, and it says, you have a tell everyone the former preacher told you that this is how that you all preferred to do it. So the young preacher did that. It worked out really well. He'd been there about a year and a half, and he tried, well, this made the deacons really mad, and so he goes back to the drawer and gets the second envelope, says, you did something to make the deacons mad, and there's talk of replacing you. Tell them this is the official denominational policy that you thought they wanted to comply, but it doesn't make any difference to you what they do. They're going to have to open the kitchen so it could be used when there wasn't a representative of the women's organization present. Well, this put the women's organization in an open revolt in the church. So we went back and opened the third envelope, and it says, you've been there about three years, and you finally got the women's organization mad. The only thing to do is prepare three envelopes. <laughs> Now, sadly, that's far too true in many churches today, right? Uh, far too many local fellowships, local assemblies of believers, local churches are, are racked with uh, discord and dissension and disunity. And what it does, it diminishes our effectiveness 
in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ when churches have constant fighting and bickering and quarreling that's taking place. Uh, so going through Maryland, uh, going to speak at a conference there, we were in Virginia and Maryland, and uh, we went by the Antietam uh, National Battlefield there, and I thought it was interesting. Ryan out front said, Battlefield Bible Church, and I thought about how sadly that's probably true of too many places. Uh, to me, the, the epistles in the New Testament, you find out that uh, disunity and discord in the churches was a persistent problem um, in the New Testament. You see it again and again in Paul's letters. Even the church is not immune from these problems. Uh, some fractures in the fellowship had begun to appear there at Philippi. Uh, some, some competing priorities had begun to surface. Uh, we have hints of this down in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Over in chapter 4 and verse 2, he singles out a couple of women in the church and tells them to live in harmony in the Lord. So Paul knows from Epaphroditus, who's come to visit Paul while he's in house arrest in Rome, Paul has heard that, that dissension has begun to kind of rear its ugly head, if you will, in the church there at Philippi. So he devotes an entire section of this letter, of this epistle, uh, to promoting harmony. And he begins to talk about this in verse 27, and really, really it'll go all the way to the end of chapter 2. Now, in our text this morning, we see clearly that the theme here is unity or harmony. Mind, striving together. Look down in chapter 2 and verse 2. He mentions, be of the same mind, have the same love, be united in spirit, have one purpose. So you can just see from all these phrases, standing together for the gospel. If we're going to stand together for the gospel, that requires harmony produced by humility. Or to put it another way, I summarized it like this. Gospel harmony requires gospel humility. If we're going to have a gospel harmony together, we have to have a humility uh, that's fostered in our lives through the gospel. Now, when we come to chapter 1, verse 27 in Philippians, we're kind of shifting gears because if you remember, in 1, 12 through 26, Paul has been talking about what's been going on in his life. So chapter 1, verses 12 to 26 is what has happened to Paul. But now, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, it's what Paul wants to happen to them. It's what Paul wants to take place in their lives. And you remember, if you're with us before, that in verses 12 uh, through 26, Paul is, is kind of unsheathed. This is what I want to happen to you. And what Paul wants for them is for them to have a gospel harmony that's produced by gospel humility. Now, there's four points this morning I have. You can see in your outline there as we unpack these verses. And uh, I, want you to, I want to mention in verses 27, these are a couple of long sentences we're going to look at. Now, it all begins in this section with what I call a, a, a statement that they're to shine together for Christ. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that word only at the beginning, you could translate just one thing. Or this one thing and this only, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. A word for the Philippians. And it carries the idea of citizenship. To live as a citizen is really what the word means. And you remember and proud of their status as a Roman colony and very proud of their Roman citizenship. It was a, a very big deal to them. And he says to them, live and conduct yourselves as citizens. And he says, do this in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now that word worthy means something of equal weight or a balance. 
And what he's saying here is you have on one side of the balance what you profess to believe, and the other side of the balance is how you live that out or your practice. And he's saying what you profess and what you practice need to balance out. Tragically, in a lot of people's lives, what they believe is way up here and what they practice is way down here. There's a massive disconnect between what we profess and what we many of Rome. And so you all live like Romans even though you don't live in Rome. And he's saying you don't live in heaven yet, but you're to live as citizens of heaven uh, here on this earth. Live on earth as citizens of heaven. Live consistent with the gospel. And I think in my own mind today, I talk with Cheryl about this often, one of the, the great tragedies in, in Christianity today is I see in, in the lives of so many people a, a massive disconnect between what they profess and what they practice. Now, all of us have some level of disconnect, right? None of us are perfect. But I'm talking about people that profess to love Christ and, and talk about spiritual things all the time and just a, a huge disconnect in their life of the way they're living. And, and, and the increasingly pagan climate we find ourselves in in our world today we make a huge impact by the way we live. People are watching to see if what we profess is it present with and worthy and balanced out with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we profess to believe. So that's the first thing here. We need to shine together for Christ in the midst of a dark world and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, now, I like this. It's kind of like when you were in school and the teacher would leave class for a little bit, right? What would happen? Your mom and dad leave for a little bit. Man, all kinds of stuff happens. He says, look, whether I'm there with you or whether I'm away from you, what I want you to do is I want you to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. Now, he employs here some military imagery, which again was fitting for the city of Philippi because it was a military city. It was the home of a lot of retired GIs or veterans uh, who lived there um, in the city of Philippi. And so when he tells them to stand firm, this is a, a, a really a statement of like a Roman military formation. You just picture soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield. And he's saying, take a fixed stand and a united stand for Christ and the gospel. So he's calling on them to close ranks, if you will. And he says, you, you got to have one ministry and one message. Stand together, and then he says, strive together. Now, that word was used of gladiators in a term or a battle term. But I love what he says here. He says, strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're to strive together for. Now, the definite article in front of the word faith, the faith, defines basically the things that we believe, uh, the orthodox faith of Christianity. Uh, the truths Christ and the gospel are central, and the most precious possession and sacred trust that we have been given is the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so there's a faith that we must believe, and there's a faith that's worth fighting for and worth standing for. And that faith must not ever be compromised. In fact, we're to, to pass that faith intact to the next generation. And we're to stand and strive without compromise. There's one thing in the church more important than unity, and that is purity of doctrine. You cannot unify around corrupt doctrine. That's not real unity. It's compromise. In James chapter 3, James says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Notice there's something more important even than peace and unity, and that is purity of what we believe. 
The problem today is many people are just calling for unity, but it's a unity based on compromise. Unity based on doctrinal compromise isn't true unity. If people reject the truth of the Bible, uh, the person of Jesus Christ, uh, the gospel of, of salvation through Jesus alone, we cannot have spiritual unity with them. Now, it doesn't mean we despise these people or we dislike them, but we can't have gospel unity with them. And we all see out there today, there's a lot of opposition to what we believe and keep striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is what we're about. That is what we unify around. We don't have to agree on everything, certainly, but we, we unify around that. So he's saying, keep standing, keep striving together for the gospel. There's an interesting story I read this week in a, a book I, I just got a couple days ago. I love this. It says a 104-year-old man was being interviewed by a newspaper reporter, and the guy said, how did you do it? How do you live to be 104? And the guy said, well, I ate the right food, got plenty of sleep each night, didn't fool around, never indulged in alcohol, smokes, or chewing. And the reporter said, well, I had an uncle that did that, but he died at 55. How do you explain that? And sure, the old man said, he just didn't keep at it long enough. <laughs> but then he said this, and I love this. I've thought about this all week. He says, what is most important about our Christian life is not what we do, but how long we do it. The failure in most Christian lives long enough. And I thought how true that is. It's not that what we do so much is it's how long we do it. And he's telling these believers here in us, keep on shining. Keep living your life worthy of the gospel. Keep standing together and striving together for the faith of the gospel. One ministry, uh, one message, and one mind. Well, the third thing that Paul tells these Philippians and us as is, is a key to gospel unity is we're to suffer together for Christ. We're to suffer together for Christ. He says in verse 28, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. Now, I love this because Paul doesn't sugarcoat things. He tells these believers right up front, you're going to be opposed. Now, of course, they knew this because remember when Paul and Silas came to Philippi, they were beaten, thrown in prison. Uh, they finally uh, leave town. And, of course, the believers there have been. And we're, as known, we're, we're known, I think, as much by our enemies and who oppose us as we are by our friends. And he's saying here, uh, the fact that people oppose you is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. Look, if you and I are standing together today for the gospel, we should expect opposition and antagonism and persecution in this world in which we live. I mean, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But all of us know today that in our country, Christianity is being more and more marginalized. It's mocked. It's ridiculed. And it's open season on Bible-believing Christians. We're, we're an easy target. Uh, we're seen as narrow and unloving and having a whole host of phobias that the world has placed upon us. And the people and telling them that the only way to a holy God is through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to God. And you see what people's response will be. You're narrow-minded, you're bigoted, you're a fool for believing these things. It's happening more and more, and I think, I think we may begin to see a watershed of this in our culture as things continue. Uh, I love what he tells them, in no way be alarmed. That word alarmed was used of a horse that got spooked or startled. It really could translate it panic. He says, look, don't panic. 
Because that's a sign of destruction for them, but a sign of salvation uh, for you. In other words, suffering for the gospel is not a sign that God has neglected you. It's actually a proof of the grace of God in your life, that you know him and have a relationship with him. Suffering for the enemy, but, uh, suffer, but actually it should encourage us and assure us when that takes place. Again, we don't, we don't go out and seek to be persecuted. We don't seek to have opposition and antagonism. We don't, we don't look for it. But if we're faithful to Christ and to his message, it's going to come. It doesn't mean God's neglected you. It's actually a sign that God is with you. Now, what he says here in verse 29 is amazing. He says, for to you it has been granted. That word literally is the word for grace. To you it has been graced for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. He's saying, look, it's been graced to you to believe in Christ. I just want to pause here for a moment and just say one thing. I hope everyone here this morning understands and realizes that if you're a believer, God gave you the gift of salvation, but not only that, he gave you the gift to believe. Notice what it says. To you it's been graced to believe in him. It's part of the grace of God that he gives us the gift of faith to trust and believe the good news of the gospel. Ephesians 2.89 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest anyone uh, should boast. Even the faith that we have to believe in Christ is a gift of God that he gives to us. Over in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, 2 Peter 1 and verse 1, he, he's talking to the, 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 the audience here, and he says, of the same kind as ours. Faith is something that's received by God. It's a gift. That's why in salvation, there's no boasting whatsoever. Christ came. He died for us. He accomplished a perfect work of salvation. And we are, are rebels against God and, and going the wrong way in life. And God comes and gives us the gift of faith to trust and to believe in Jesus Christ. So he says, look, God has given you the gift of faith and the gift of salvation. But notice, he says, he's saying here that suffering for Christ, being marginalized and ridiculed and mocked for Christ, is actually a gift that God gives to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't normally look at it that way. If this is a gift, you know, it's a, it's a strange gift. But he's saying here that our faith or ability to believe is a gift, but suffering for Christ and the gospel is a gift. It's a privilege. Suffering are gifts from God. And, and notice in verse 30, he says, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me. And he's referring again back to when he was there in, in Acts 16 with, with Silas. He said, man, you saw when I was there at Philippi what they did to me. They beat us and put us in prison in stocks. And he says, and you now here to be in me because he's under so he's saying, look, suffering for Christ and the gospel together as God's people is a privilege that God has graced to us along with the gift of salvation. So that's another aspect of our sharing together. Now, finally, and the most basic key to gospel unity for us is we're to be selfless together for Christ. We're to be selfless together for Christ. Now, in these, in these four verses... Uh, in these uh, first two verses, Paul is going to give uh, three reasons why we should have spiritual unity with one another. 
Now, some of your translations, like I'm using the New American Standard, says if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's consolation of love, it ways to write conditional statements. And here, these are what's called first-class conditions. It's assumed to be true. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is. So you could really translate it since. Since there's encouragement in Christ, since there's consolation of love, we need to be united for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of Christ. Notice what he says, since there is encouragement in Christ, he's saying, look, you receive encouragement from being united with Jesus Christ. You are close to him and he is close, you're close to him, then you ought to be close to each other. He's saying, look, for, for the sake of Christ, you ought to be unified with one another. He says, if there's any consolation of love, if you've experienced the consoling love that Jesus Christ gives to unworthy sinners, then you ought to show love. Unworthy as we are, we should show that same love for one another. And then he says, if there's any, at the end of the verse, if there's any affection and compassion, we've experienced the outpouring of mercy from Jesus Christ, the love and tender mercy for Jesus Christ that he's given to you and to me. He's saying we should extend to other people. So we're saying, look, Christ, we, we've, we've had his encouragement. We have his consolation. We have his tender mercy and his compassion. We've all experienced those things. We, we have a common experience together. We ought to share those things with one another. It's like a family, what you share together. Married, her family and her friends became my family and my friends. And my family and my friends became her friends. It's the old saying, you marry the family, right? You marry into the family. And when we're saved, we marry into God's family, if you will. And we love those who love Him. And we love those that He loves. If you're a Christian, you're going to love the people that Christ loves. And in fact, that's one of the evidences, I think, that we're a believer, that we love uh, the people of God. We're drawn together uh, with God's people. You know, there's been the old analogy that's been given before. You know, a church is not like a, a, a bag of marbles, or we shouldn't be. All that holds a bag of marbles together is the bag, the external. You cut the bag, and the unity's over. The marbles go everywhere. But the body of Christ is to be more like a magnet with iron filings, if you will, where there's an internal pull that draws us together. And it's the common experience we've had of the, the encouragement of, and, and consolation and tender mercy of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, look, for, for the sake of Christ, the sake of the Holy Spirit, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, or since there's fellowship in the Holy Spirit, he's saying, look, we, we share a common fellowship in the Holy Spirit. We belong to the fellowship of God's people that's created by the Holy Spirit. So since that's true then we should have unity and harmony with one another. So he's saying, look, be united for Christ's sake, be united for the Spirit's sake. And then I love this in verse 2, he says, be united for my sake. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. I don't know if you all know this or not, but you have it in your power to make the pastors and the elders of this church either very, very happy or very, very miserable. Did you know that? Uh, you can drain the joy out of the leaders in this church by constant problems and bickering and squawking, or you can make the ministry that we do here a great joy. Uh, you can make me and the pastors and the elders here 
uh, miserable, or you can top off our joy in life. And it's what is said over in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 13 and verse 17, where he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Look, bickering believers and squawking saints make life miserable for uh, leaders. I mean, it's the same thing in a family. Their kids are fighting all the time. It makes it miserable for parents, right? Or in a workplace, wherever it is. I've always thought it was interesting. You go back and read the life of Moses. It's not the Egyptians that brought Moses to his knees. It was the people of God. It was the people in the wilderness. All their complaining and their quarreling and their bickering, it, it brought the, the man of God to his knees. There's a great quote I read years ago, and it said this few thought. Few people are successful unless a lot of people want them to be. There's not, if there's not people wanting you to be successful in life, it's very difficult. And I'm so thankful for all of you here. Any success that we've had here at Faith Bible Church is because there's a lot of people who wanted us to be successful. And I'm so thankful for, for our church here. Uh, you all, over 20, almost 26 years now of us being here, have made our work here for myself and, and Cheryl and our family and for our elders. But unity is a very fragile thing. And we always have to be on guard, and we never, ever uh, want to take it for granted. So Paul says, look, for the sake of Christ, have harmony. For the sake of the Spirit, for, for my sake, he says, minding the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that we all agree on everything. You can't get a 1,000 people to agree on the thermostat setting in the church, right? I mean, you usually can't get two people in a marriage to agree on the thermostat setting in their house, right? It doesn't mean that we all agree about everything, but it means, mind, means we're minding uh, the gospel. That's our focus, Jesus Christ and his gospel. It says maintaining the same love, having a mutual love one for the other. He says, being united in spirit. Literally in the Greek, that means one-souled. I mean, we're soul brothers and sisters, if you will, in the body of Jesus Christ. And then he says, intent on one purpose. Literally, again, it means minding one thing. And that one thing we're to be minding is the gospel of Jesus Christ and how through that we can bring glory to God. So one ministry, one message, one mind, minding the gospel and the glory of God. Now, all of these are expressions of unity. Now, when we talk about unity, we're not talking about uniformity. Uniformity is when either I say to you or you say to me, be like me. That's uniformity. And we're all going to use the same Bible version. We're all going to dress the same way. We're all going to like the same kind of music. On and on you can go. That's uniformity. Unity is when you say to me or I say to you, you got to be like me or I got to be like you. Unity is when we come together as God's people and say, let's be like Jesus Christ. What brings us together is Jesus. It's not you be like me and I be like you. It's let's be like him. That's how you have unity and harmony in a local assembly of believers. In his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozier says this, has it ever occurred to you that a hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. 
And he goes on to make the being tuned to Jesus Christ. That's what brings us together in unity and harmony. It's being tuned to Jesus Christ. You can have all kinds of diversity in the church, different opinions, different personalities, all kinds of things. And that's beautiful. That's what we want. But underneath that, you can still have unity if we're all tuned to Jesus Christ and our goal is to be like him. Now, verse 3, Paul puts his finger on the key problem here. The problem is selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Now, it doesn't say just don't do most things from this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The word selfishness in that day was used of a party spirit, someone having a, a spirit of rivalry. Of, I'm, I'm in this party and you're in that party. It, it carries just really the idea of to want your own way, to, to demand your own way. And then he says, or empty conceit. I like the old King James on this. He calls it vain glory. Vain glory. Seeking self-glory. It's like the young woman that asked for an appointment with her pastor to talk about a, a besetting sin that she had that was worrying her all the time. And she said to the pastor, she said, Pastor, I've become aware of a sin in my life I can't control. Every time I'm at church, I begin to look around at the other women, and I realize that I'm the prettiest one in the whole congregation. None of the others can compare with my beauty. What can I do? <laughs> Vain glory. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And then notice the middle of the verse, the contrast. But, but, and it's emphatic, with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. He shifts from the negative to the, it's esteeming yourself small. It's the mentality, literally, of a slave is what this word means. And we would summarize it, I think, with our word, humility, to be humble. Someone once asked uh, the great uh, Saint Augustine, what is the first mark of true religion? And he said, humility. And they said, what's the second mark? He said, humility. They said, what's the third mark? And he said, humility. He said, the first mark, the second mark, and the third mark of true religion is humility. And it says here, humble yourself with humility of mind and let each of you regard, that word regard means to calculate. Calculate one another as more important than yourself. Now, something very important here, it doesn't say regard other people as more important than yourself or better than yourself. I mean, it doesn't say regard them as related and regard someone and their interests to be more important uh, than your interests. And he says, don't merely look out in verse 4 for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Again, one of the great besetting problems that's down inside the heart of every one of us is our constant focus in life is what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? And what we're talking about here is selfishness and pride. The problem, the base problem that all of us have is self-centered pride, and God's prescription for that is others-centered uh, humility. I ran across a, a statement about pride a while back. It's one of the best ones I've ever read. Listen to these words. Pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its root goes deep. Only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks, and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. Well, that's powerful, isn't it? If a person's attractive or handsome, God's been good to them. 
But then they take that and they use it as pride. If they're a great athlete, if they're intelligent, pride feeds on goodness. I mean, that's the tragedy. The God has been good to someone in his kindness and given them benefits, yet they turn around and turn the goodness of God into pride. It flourishes in good soil. We have to remember that. Now, it doesn't mean here that you don't mind your own things. We've always tried to see things from the perspective of others. Look, at, look out for what other people are interested in and, and think about maybe what would benefit and edify them in their lives. Think about others and their needs and interests rather than always looking at everything uh, from your own perspective. And yet, just ask ourselves the question this morning. Think about this in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, here at church. Does it always have to be about me? Does it always have to be about me? If that's true, I can promise you there's disharmony. There's disunity. Just thinking about applying this just in general to our homes and whatever, I mean, this idea of having lowliness of mind, calculating others is more important than myself, not looking out for my own interests but for the interests of others, that is a recipe for harmony in a marriage and in a home. I'm sure right now this morning as I'm speaking here, there are homes here this morning in marriages where there's a lot of friction and there's a lot of fracture. And I can assure you, if that's true, that somewhere lurking under the surface in that whole problem is pride and selfishness. When I talk to young couples and do pre-marriage counseling, that's the, one of, that's the main thing we talk, and any problem you will ever have in the future, somewhere in that there's selfishness involved in either part of one of you or both of you. That's what creates disharmony. We, we want our own way. There's no harmony uh, without humility. Selfish, uh, uh, selfless, humble people are a joy to be around and a joy to live with. But selfish, stubborn, prideful people are a nightmare to live with. And I don't care how good they look or how much money they have, they're a nightmare uh, to live with. And again, there are some of us here this morning that there's problems in our homes because we're being selfish and stubborn and prideful. And somewhere, somebody's got to come in and say, you know what? I've been wrong, and I apologize, and, and begin to make things right. It's very hard to, to argue and fight with someone who's humble, who's lowly of mind, and who's regarding the, the interests of others as more important than themselves. We're always to be moving in our lives from self-centered pride to an others-centered humility. Here in about a month, I'm going to bring a couple messages related to the Protestant Reformation. October 31st this year will be the, the 500th anniversary of the, what's considered the beginning, in many ways, of the Reformation. So I've been doing a lot of reading in the life of Martin Luther. A statement that he made I ran across, it's powerful. He says, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. What a statement that is. Down inside of us, we all have a great pope that wants to run everything. That's the pope of self. We need to be about in our lives killing pride and kindling humility in our hearts. Now you say, well, how do you do that? Because the problem with pride and humility is the more you think about how humble you are, the less humble you are, right? Someone said, you know, humility is like is what I read this week. Someone said, the secret of humility is to never stray too far from the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And if we go off into the cross and we think, you know, I, I was in rebellion against God, a rebel going my own way, and God did not have to save me. God came, as we read in this verse, and he graced to me the gift of faith. 
If God had not done that, I would be lost and on my way to an eternity separated from him. And that's what God did for me. We think about that often and let that percolate down into our heart and our mind and our soul. How can we help but be humble? You have to think about being humble. Humility comes from never straying uh, too far from the cross of Jesus Christ. And of course, that brings up this morning the important issue of have you ever come to the cross for the first time? Have you ever come to the cross for the first time and humbled yourself and said, I'm a sinner? There's no way that I can, can, can monger up enough merit to, to please a holy God. The only way I can be saved is through Jesus Christ. I love the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He died for us, the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. If you've never received that message, I need Jesus to be my Savior. I can never get to heaven without him. You'll believe in him in your heart right now and trust in him. One final thought before we go. Uh, William Booth was the founder of the uh, Salvation Army. He went to the worst of the worst in London uh, to minister to them. It's a just tremendous story of his life. And his, they held an annual conference, the Salvation Army did, and in his later years, in the early 1900s, he was an invalid, uh, very, very poor health, wasn't able to attend. But they wanted a message from their leader. So he sent a telegram uh, to, the, to the conference, and the conference speaker had this telegram and was so excited to come up and read it to everybody, and he opens it up, and he gets up there, and he says, we have a word from, from General Booth, and he opened it up, and the message was one word, others. That was it. And you'll notice in our text this morning, at least in my translation, in chapter 2, verse 4, that's the last word, the word others. And I thought this morning how fitting it is, is since that's the last word of Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, if we would let that always be the last word in our relationships with one another, others. May God help us in our relationships to put others first, to put our spouse first, our children, our grandchildren, people in this church, people we work with, to be selfless, to have a deep gospel humility so that we can enjoy a wonderful, rich gospel harmony here at Faith Bible Church, so we can do the dark world that needs him so desperately. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in him, that they would do it now, or that they'd realize he died for them, that they're unjust, but he's just, and that he died in their place on the cross. Father, I thank you so much for Faith Bible Church and for the spirit of harmony and unity that you've given to us through these many years. It's brought great joy to me and our pastors, our elders here. We thank you for that, O oh God. We realize just as in our families that, that harmony can be a fragile thing. We never want to take that for granted. Father, I pray for marriages here today that are struggling or homes and families where there's all kinds of friction strife and dissension that's taking place, a lot of stubbornness, Lord, and pride, selfishness. I pray today that as we see what Jesus has done for us, that you just begin to drain that out of our lives, to regard others and calculate others as more important than ourselves. Oh, Father, may that be our portion as we await the coming of our Lord. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand for the benediction, please, as we are dismissed with the Lord's blessing this morning. If you are a guest or a visitor, we're so glad you're here. 
uh, this morning. We pray that you will find this to be a, a loving, a harmonious fellowship of people who are trying to all be tuned uh, to Jesus Christ. Um, there's a, a welcome center out there on the left in the lobby, some folks there that would love to greet you this morning. So uh, stop by there on the way out, and they'd love to give you some information about our church. Let's bow.